welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters who've been doing this for <laughs> way too long talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by Tony. These are all my monsters, enough to make you scream. These are all my monsters, I want a nightmare, not a dream. And then it goes, and it's like a super heavy, super fast tune from I want to hear some very, death metal. a very old friend of mine who has actually passed away a couple of years back uh, from Mr. Monster. So that's Mr. all my Monster. monsters from Mr. Monster. Yes, for Jason. <laughs> that one's for Jason. Boy, well, hey, again, we continue our tour of the East Coast grunge, yeah. East Coast underground rock scene. So this one is definitely, so I did the Sharky's Machine one a couple episodes back. This one is definitely more known and is like, is more out there. Like he, there was an <laughs> international audience for this at least, so. All right, all right, all right. And it does, it segues perfectly with the topic we are talking about here today. And of course, needing no introduction, that is Dave, the rock and roll DM, our DM Dave, not to be confused with other DM Daves out there. Oh, uh, there's like three or four. And I'm really like, I want to contact them and be like, guys, like we should maybe like create like a cabal and do like a panel on Gen, at Gen Con or something. <laughs> The, the Daves, DM, the, the DM Dave Cabal. I think there, there's 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 something there. Got something there. Yeah, call, give us a call, guys. Both of you, DM David and DM Dave. Give us <laughs> give us a ring. Dave, Dave, and Dave. My brother Dave, <laughs> other brother Dave, and and my Daryl. <laughs> but this week we are talking about iconic monsters and how do you run them. So, like Dave said. All my monsters. Now, we're not going to go into all the monsters. We're going to go into some of the more iconic D&D monsters and also monsters that are iconic even beyond D&D and talk a little bit and kind of broad strokes about how do we go about running these types of monsters? How do we go about making goblins feel like goblins and vampires feel like vampires and that sort of thing? So you have an, an encounter that isn't just an any other monster encounter, but sort of builds on the reputation and the legend of the monsters you're dealing with. Sound about mm. uh, that, 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 that sound in line with what you guys are thinking here? Yep. I love it. Even though I was prepared, I thought we were going to do A to Z. A to Z. I thought we were just doing A to Z each monster. We're going to do a 27 part episode. First time in Three Wise DM's history. The real question is where, where, you know, how many books do you include in that? All of them. Every, All of them? Yeah, Cobalt Press, too. We're all third party. Boom. <laughs> I got news for you. I got the uh, Sandy Peterson Cthulhu Mythos for 5D. I have the Cobalt Press Tome of Monsters. I you will definitely the... find some overlap between the various books and the monsters that they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I want to see the Tome of... I've been hearing a lot about Tome of Beasts from Cobalt. It, 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 that it's pretty cool. Um, so I got yeah. that one for Christmas. I haven't opened it up yet, so we'll nice. see. We'll nice. see. Maybe soon. All right. Soon. soon. So... We're talking about iconic monsters, and uh, so guys, where do you want to start? Should we start with the lowly, humble goblin? There is nothing humble about that. I'm just, we usually, Tony usually jumps right in with this. That's the way we do it, but I'm jumping in because goblins might be the most iconic, outside of dragons being in the name, goblins are the most iconic creature type in D&D history because Every single first level fucking adventure starts with goblins somewhere, somehow. 
Storm to be fair, Storm. I've started some with kobolds, but you have a point. That they're just dragon goblins. <laughs> <laughs> but go Storm ahead, Tony, please. Goblins. I know I jumped in on you. Go ahead, no, go. No, no, no. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna take the floor, that's fine. But I was gonna say, uh, if you're gonna play something like goblins, which are so widely known, you don't want to paint yourself into a corner and allow for some range. And what I mean by that is you have, uh, I, for example, I, I had two different goblin NPCs in, in two different campaigns. Uh, one was the comical savage goblin. His name was Rocksnot. And uh, <laughs> he was a not great, uh, scrappy adversary of the party. And then much later, I had a goblin named Wahuka, who was a goblin wizard, who... Um, could not possibly be any different or uh, any less different, excuse me, uh, rather more, more different. different. Yeah. Cut that in the edit. So anyway, um, <laughs> could not possibly be any more different. Yes, indeed. Because he is a mage. Uh, he is just not just simply, uh, an animalist to cunning. He is studied and he actually is an NPC in a different campaign altogether. He gets his own voice. Mm. You know, he, he's somewhat of a beloved character. Versus this other one where the party snuffed out like a candle. <laughs> I mean, so like, I think we're talking about, you know, how do you run these epic monsters? Maybe we need to start at the beginning of what makes them epic and what do you need to hit on? I mean, epic's the wrong word here. What makes yeah. them legendary? What makes them iconic? iconic. That's the iconic. word. Iconic. Yeah. Iconic. Yeah. But what is it that makes these monsters iconic and what do you play into in order to play up their iconicness? I mean, when I think goblins, what I think are basically a tribe you know tribal villains um they're bullies they're greedy they want to steal stuff and they're basically going to attack i mean they might run away but they're going to they're going to attack before they run away you know there's going to be there's going to be there's going to be some fisticuffs when you go into a goblin lair and actually for me one of the coolest things that i've seen matt coville do was his build of a goblin boss Mm. He basically laid in a bunch of a bunch of abilities that felt goblin-y. And that goblin boss got abilities like get over here, where he could summon he could basically summon a, a, another goblin and shove him in front of an attack targeting him. He could pull other goblins into the fight because he's the boss and he yells at them and he scares them to come out and get in the fight. That kind of bully-esque aspect in the run by a bully who bullies the other goblins around, to me, is kind of the what makes goblins iconic one. Two, what makes goblins iconic on this kind of the second level is I like my goblins to be a little bit infatuated with traps and tricks that they don't know how to work with, which brings us to Bixie the Boom Goblin, the mm-hmm. goblin artificer <laughs> I'm playing in, in, in our Tomb of Horrors game, um, where I, I like the idea that, a go- that goblins have some kind of uh, ability or some kind of trap or some kind of catapult or something that has as much chance of damaging them as damaging the party. I think that's another iconic aspect of, of goblins, you know, or they have some kind of flame trap set up where, okay, it's going to, it's going to set the party on fire, but it's going to set goblins on fire too. They aren't smart enough to look out for their own self-interest in many cases. It's another, it's, that's kind of, to me, iconic goblin too. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, along with uh, why they are iconic is because they have such notoriety. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, People we talk about want to go down the list here, or perhaps in some cases they have general notoriety. In other words, they're specific to D and D. Like for example, a, gl- a gelatinous cube. I'm not going to get into how I would specifically role play with a cube because you know that's <laughs> going to be a lot of nonverbal acting right there. The dungeon vacuum cleaner. It's the dungeon Roomba. 
right? It, it, it's got it's got its characteristics and it makes it kind of like a B-list celebrity in a matter of speaking. Fair. What was that one goblin in that 4E adventure, like when we first started and he kicked the holy crap out of us? Who am I thinking I don't of? remember the name, but that Iron was Iron a... something. He was an elite goblin. He was Iron a... Foot or something like that? Or... Was it, was it a specific, was it a, a published adventure or was it a homebrew thing you guys were running through? I think it was probably a published adventure because I think I started out that group with a published adventure, but I don't remember who the goblin was. However, the goblin was like, it was like a goblin boss. And, oh, he, yeah. and, and while the other goblins were easy for the party to take out, the goblin boss of fourth edition was not. Just like there were several things in fourth edition that like were were played above their their crit level or whatever the equivalent was in fourth edition. Uh, one of them was the guard Drake who could knock players down and basically eviscerate them in a, like one round of attacks. Another one was, I think, the, the goblin, the elite goblin might have been a goblin boss who was just a whole other challenge compared to what they had fought coming in. Oh, yeah, that that was actually horrendous. We're like, yeah, we're fighting some goblins, fighting some goblins, doing okay, and all the martial characters are down. <laughs> you know, like, start time to start bleeping things. You're like, you know, beep! Like, everyone's running around in circles, you know, trying to make it to the door. And But you know what? That actually, and that's maybe a mistake as far as the encounter building goes, because as much as I want the goblins to be tough, and I want them to be greedy, and I want them to be mean, and I want them to want to beat you up, I think you got to put the cap on the goblins should not be so tough that they can like just trounce the party. Yeah. There has to be a weakness to them. Yes. I mean, which leads to the mean spiritedness and the, the, the pack tactics and all the greed and all those things. Right. Yes. Even the goblin boss shouldn't be so tough that he's a real threat to the party. You know, unless you guys came in really weakened and made some mistakes, like the goblin boss should still be relatively not able to take down the party because that's what goblins are. They're weak villains that are basically dangerous in numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a great way to put it. That's why you have other things like goblinoids, right? So you got your bugbears and your hobgoblins and all those. They're the ones to to come in to be the big heavy hitters. Your goblins are, I think one of the reasons they're so iconic is... They're one generally weird looking, right? They're generally <laughs> pretty weak. Uh, they they serve a purpose for that's why every first level adventure you're probably going to run into uh, goblins or spiders, right? But goblins at least are somewhat humanoid. They have like you were saying, they're these pack, they're these tribal things, but they're not like the way they don't have the same depth that sometimes an orc tribe might, where there might be you know additional culture like goblins kind of are used as this they're just out there they kind of have a level of intelligence but for the most part they're just wild animals who are have gotten enough consciousness to be uh targeting you now actively right (laughs) so they're a great foil in that way uh like you said but without being so strong as to just house a new party like if you put them up against a hobgoblin tribe or something like they would just be housed at first, second level. But goblins, like, you at least have a fighting chance, and it's more fun than cleaning out the rats in the cellar. That brings you the whole interaction with the bugbears, too, because you can have a bugbear in a goblin lair. The bugbear is not the chief, but the bugbear is the toughest one in there and able to bully other people around. He's cracking his knuckles, yeah. You know, I played, when I played Zhang the bugbear when he first started, I played him like Debo from Friday. <laughs> Debo's the one, you tuck your chain when Debo comes around, because Debo's going to take whatever you have. Yeah. Like he's, you, you have a nice, fresh, juicy rat. Debo's going to take your rat. That's that's the way I played him in the beginning in that he came from this goblin culture where basically he was the biggest and toughest goblin in there. And he had no desire to lead, 
but he wanted whatever he wanted. And he felt like he was entitled to take it. And he would beat you up if you couldn't take it. Like having that, you can kind of have that level of interaction where it's, it's a very mean spirited kind of culture, which also coincidentally makes the players feel pretty good about beating up on it. Yeah. That does no one feels bad for the goblins. Yeah. Uh, it leaves it a little open. The goblins were really tough in points and fought for E because it sets a tone for the shit show you're going to be walking into. You absolutely can find a 90 hit point goblin in yes. fourth edition. And it's not that unbelievable. Uh, well, I'm going to argue a 90 hit point goblin is unbelievable, no matter if it's in fourth edition or not. Well, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I, I like I said, that, that's when you bring in other muscle. But I've actually been having some fun because it's the first time I've played goblins differently in the Frostmaiden campaign, uh, partly because they're written like this. Uh, like I've said, this Frostmaiden has been moving towards some of these adventure paths that are trying to have things outside of Annihilation and Scorched Earth be the solution to the problem. Um, so these these couple goblins that they come upon who belong to another tribe are really out there just being scavengers. They're not mean-spirited or evil. They're still goblins, but there's a level of, of role play that you can have with them because, you know, they had already done their first level thing where they got to kill stuff, so I didn't have to waste it on <laughs> goblins, but yeah. All right, so then can we round up goblins then? I mean, so are we all in agreement? Basically, if you're playing at goblins, you want to play up what makes goblins iconic. They're kind of a they're 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 a loose rabble kept together by a strong man. They are basically going to beat up anything they come across, and if they can't beat it up, they're going to run away. And they're basically greedy and mean spirited and want to take or take or hurt whatever they can. Right? Sound about yeah. right? And yeah, I mean that's goblin wizard. Unless he's a goblin, well, still wizard. at all. To be fair, you, you, you're you're literally you're specifically playing against type with him, though. Same with uh, Bixie the Boom Goblin. He's playing against type for a goblin. But if I want to come in there as a DM and I want to play, okay, what is an iconic goblin? How do I want to run this set of goblins so they feel like the iconic goblins? I'm not including a goblin wizard. All right, maybe one in the back hey. somewhere. You know, he he's, he, he's, he's, he's the uh, he's the head of him, and he's he's collected this rabble around him, and they all worship him like a god. You know, now, you know what the goblin wizard is? The goblin wizard can't cast his own spells, but he has a wand of wonder. Oh, that's, that's your goblin that's, wizard. That could be a little hefty at level one, though, <laughs> as well, he well, ignites fireball in the room or something. If he rolls that one hundred, sure. Yeah, I mean, but I, awesome. I, the odds of him doing that are like slim and none. <laughs> Not to mention, then you get to introduce your party to a wand of wonder at an early level, which is always fun. Hey, you it know? depends on the party. <laughs> All right. Tony, is that, that what you have for goblins? Yeah, I mean, they could be cunning tricksters. They could be savage. Um, I get into uh, the description of them. I want you to actually feel that you are facing a goblin. But, you know, uh, they do they do have a general air about them, so to speak. I mean, you're not expecting them to come out and uh, start reading Socrates to you. And if they do, that's interesting. Well, true. And so do you play them as cunning, as more cunning tricksters? Well, I don't I'm see. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the later rulings with, say, alignment is they pulled, ripped that off and said, OK, we're not doing this in general anymore, is yeah. that inherently these creatures can behave really in any way it fits your storytelling. So if these guys, like I have a story right now where the kobolds are, yes, there's a dragon uh, that guides them, but they're more into commerce. You know, first they were trying to, you know, scavenge and hunt and pick off um, merchants, what have you. But when they had an opportunity to make a living a different, safer way, they went with it. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's an interesting point, though, Tony. And I know that Thorne is a big fan of them, but I find that that's the biggest. So you have, as I said earlier, you have they're just dragon goblins for like kobolds, right? Mm-hmm. They're the cunning tricksters. They're the ones whose inventions work most of the time. Where Thorne made a good point, goblins like their catapult is probably going to blow up in their face before it ever hits you with anything. Like that's kind of very gobliny. But the kobold side of things, they're the ones who are like, they're weak and all of that, but they're kind of intelligent enough to be able to create those things. So, so I think it's a little different than those. Yeah, do we want to move on to kobolds? Do they, do they deserve a full entry as far as you guys are concerned? Uh, uh, you're going to want to talk about them. I, mean, you I don't know. Are they, are they iconic to D&D? I mean, I think you could make I think the so. Argument. I think you can make the argument. I mean, yeah, they're they're iconic enough that they've survived the reskinning from being little bulldog people to being actual, you know, dragon people. Did uh, I can't remember? Did kobolds go all the way back to first and basic? I believe so. They at were least they go back in there. A- absolutely, yeah, they yeah. were. Okay. Yeah, because I believe there's a kobold. I think there's a kobold actually in in keep on the borderlands. Yeah, I think there, oh, I, I, I think maybe. I remember playing with one in there. Okay, all right. I, there's so, even a kobold god in the D, uh, Legend and Lore book. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then I think that that's a valid point. If you've uh, survived this whole time, then kobolds, so, I think, are out there. I'll put it this way. So we don't need to spend a lot of time on kobolds, nor did I necessarily need to drag them in. But since Tony brought them up. Because <laughs> you love these would, little guys. To me, kobolds are goblins with a plan. Love it. Like, yes. You, you, I wouldn't call them necessarily dragon goblins, but kobolds have a plan. They're trying to hatch the dragon Easter egg. They're trying to, you know, they're they're the ones who have who have basically who've made wingsuits work and they can do some flying. Yes, some flying kobolds. They're the ones who think, oh hey, I can't, we can't take this guy down by just hitting his armor, but you know, sixteen of us can swarm on him and drag him to the ground, and then we can just start cutting his armor off and stabbing him in the groin, and he dies. You know, kobolds to me, that's how I tend to play them. Kobolds are goblins of the plan, for me. If that whether that plan is to serve a, a dragon and do his bidding. Or the plan is to, you know, they have they have a strategy they're going to deal with you with. That's how I tend to play kobolds. I tend to play them more as the cunning trickster than I do goblins, at least for me. Um, there was actually a, a kobold in Neverwinter Nights who was uh, super, uh, he was actually possibly the coolest kobold of all time. His name was Deacon, and he literally was, he had his, he was working on his draconic powers way before anybody else got into this. So, <laughs> Like he was a dragon sidekick and the dragon was evil and the hero killed the dragon and he still piled around with him and he uh, developed his draconic powers. And he went from being a comical, uh, you know, individual to like a like comic relief to truly formidable while still being comic relief. That does sound pretty cool. I mean, and that is the thing, like as much as we're talking about what, OK, the concept of the episode is how do you play these guys so they're iconic? How do you play into their iconic kind of? what you normally think of them as. But at the same time, some of the most memorable characters, like Tony's brought up a few times, Play are the type. ones who go against type. Yeah. I think that's absolutely fair. Well, that's what makes, that makes an, a specific NPC or villain interesting, but not the, the, the general monster creature as a whole. Like, what do you think of when you think of goblins? There's always going to be that one wizard who's like, whatever, or the shopkeep who, or the adventurer who's now pretty cool. And they're a goblin. But what do you think of when you're putting goblins in your adventure as as an enemy or kobolds, yeah. right? As an enemy, what do you think about? What's their tagline? Yeah. 
So, okay, we've hit the little guys. We've hit the goblins and the kobolds. Who's next on the list? Oh, the big boys. The next okay. in, in line with goblins, man. Orcs. Orcs. Orc has to be the most – that's the most iconic in fantasy, I'm going to say. Right? I mean, it crosses so many – so many uh, mediums, but especially in D&D. And if you bring in like the World of Warcraft ideas and stuff, forget about it, right? You know what I find funny about orcs and goblins? Yeah. If you read Tolkien, if you read Lord of the, if you read the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, yeah. goblins are, orcs are goblinoids. They're just a bigger version of goblins. Yeah, if, if, as far as I can in go his, back to uh, the original, to, to the start world. of them. Yeah. You know, so, so, but I do agree. They have become their own thing. But to me, it's always funny because, okay, you have your goblins and then you have your orcs. And then in Tolkien's world, you have your Urukai, who kind of are kind of like almost like hobgoblins, almost. And as far as the way they go about, yeah, being more military and stuff like that. Yeah, I would say I think I actually had to go back just to double check to make sure orcs were not goblinoids. You know, I had to just make sure as before we went in the episode, I didn't want to sound like a complete idiot. You know, but I had to go <laughs> check because they have so many of the similar. They're played oftentimes, I think, in similar characteristics. But like I said before, there's there's a depth that you can get with some orcs where you can bring in more culture, I think, than you can with goblins uh, as a whole. Again, there's there's certain instances with characters or certain tribes, but orcs generally you can you can start to play them a little bit more more tribal, more ordered in a way, even if it's still the order is to go and take from the men or whatever it might be. I think orcs present a interesting opportunity to have a formidable foe that are still quite beatable. Like I like the way that Lord of the Rings presented them in terms of imagery during the movies. Um, You know, they should be ferocious, you know, but you don't want these guys to be like putties or like the ninjas that you have in those 80s movies where you can just kill like 30, 40 of them and nobody gets a scratch. I mean, that's just that's that's intel- terrible. The, the, the plucky little ninja orcs. Yeah, no, 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 nobody wants that unless you're running a real tongue, tongue and cheek campaign. And then maybe that is hilarious. But. So then what makes orcs iconic when you're when you're going to run orcs, how do you run them? So you've run into the iconic player expectation or really make it feel like these are orcs you're fighting and not just some random other human group. I remember one DM who um, ran them very soft and the players just mowed down legions of them, even at low level. And the question is, if you're blowing, mowing down legions of orcs and goblins and stuff at low level, then what the hell are you going to be doing when you're level nine? Mowing down legions of like, you know, white dragons. I mean, it's really. <laughs> <laughs> it's always just legions of something. <laughs> the yeah, next that, CR up. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's just. Um, you're setting yourself up like that. The expectation of endless hack and slashes, shoving monsters across the table, and the players just grinding up like a wood chipper. That's not exactly the most exciting gameplay we can offer. So basically, work should be tough. They shouldn't be as weak as goblins and kobolds. They should be a tougher, something that is at least equivalent to a human, to like a human warrior or a, or a human guardsman at least. Uh, I would say a little tougher. Uh, oh, I think God, about yeah. weight classes. You know, weight class. In your weight class, when you come in, you're a lightweight. You're not le- You're not going to come in there. And that's the thing about D&D that's really well. It gives you a gauge based on your level of the crap you should and should not be doing. So when you're a level two fighter and you want to challenge a tough-looking orc, okay, that's that's something interesting. You go t- challenge a tough-looking giant, well, that's the end of your life. 
<laughs> it's time to try that, that other character idea you had. I think there's a good reason that if you choose half orc as your as your race in character creation, you are going to be stronger. You're going to be more formidable in combat. You're going to be ferocious, ruthless. I think orcs are that. They are going to be super tough. Uh, maybe they're not as intelligent as as men as a whole, as humankind as a whole. For instance, let's say maybe. And that's why they haven't built the cities and stuff. They're usually more out in the wilderness. They're more tribal. They're more rustic. But they're ferocious. But there's maybe a hierarchy that they have uh, mm. within it. So, um, but their ruthlessness and they they will take what they deem is theirs. If they, it's you know the strongest will survive kind of thing. The way Tony played them in Storm King's Thunder in one of our earliest. Uh, adventures in it when we were in no Nightstone, we had started to kind of figure out what was happening in Nightstone. And then all of a sudden, this orc tribe decides to want to storm the gates because Nightstone is now weakened. They are in a bad state. So we want to go take their stuff. We want their meat. We want their their swords, their whatever they might be wanting or needing at that point. And they're going to take it because they're the strongest. So. Would you and say, within their tribe, they're going to play in that way too, right? They're going to be very much alpha and all of that, you know. So, Klingons are Klingons yes. space? Are they space orcs or are they space hobgoblins? There are ah. space orcs, and they're called Scrow. That's a thing. <laughs> no, they. Yeah, I was just about to make that point, and then as I was thinking about it, I was like, they're ferocious in that way, the way Klingons are, and the way battle and yeah. honor and that. But hobgoblins are definitely more – I think of hobgoblins as like that samurai Klingon honor system. But like orcs are Klingons before Kaelas came and like set down the orders, right? Set down the, yeah, okay. the uh, okay. you know, the gospel as it were. See, to me, I do think of hobgoblins – and this is a situation where I almost think you need to think of these two things as like how do they relate to each other. I think of orcs as your more ferocious warlike warriors – um, and I think of hobgoblins as almost a little more Roman. They're a little more your orderly warriors. They fight in formation. Mm. You know, orcs swarm you and attack, and they're ferocious and they're savage, and they and they and they try to destroy you with brute force and with and with strength and with cunning. Hobgoblins try to destroy you because they know how to make a shield wall. They know how yeah. to use spears, and they know how to use bowmen behind their shield wall. Like, like to me, like that's kind of the difference. Is orcs are kind of more like. That that less civilized, ferocious warrior, and hobgoblins are more that ruthless. Okay, we understand we understand war a bit better, so we're gonna fight in formation with better armor and things like that. Yeah, even if the orcs are pound for pound, way beastier, right? Like way more like hefty in a way. But yeah, like they're, they're Klingons before Kalis and after Kalis. That's that's the orcs and hobgoblins. That's a good for our Star Trek fans, right? What do you think, Tony? Anything else to add to the orcs? Yeah, I, I just say wouldn't, you know, undersell them. I mean, while yeah. they should certainly not be the most powerful thing in your game world, they should be formidable. If your party is jumped in the middle of the night by a bunch of orcs, it should be a scary moment. You should be able to, you know, leverage your threat level uh, with them quite handily, especially when the characters are you know, one through three, four, even some of the other orc builds at level five. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, don't undersell your orcs. They are kind of your, uh, 
they are your 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 meat and potato warriors for I guess really throughout your first really throughout the rest of the first tier, right? Up Easily. until going into the second tier. Easily. I think some of those like Tony was saying, some of those heftier builds that they're throwing out with some orcs now and yeah. some of the supplements at least. I'm like, Jesus, like I might be able to throw these against like you guys now in certain situations, you know, at least as as the uh, pikemen, you know, at least as the first <laughs> infantry wave. Yeah, right. but I mean, easily. what kind of makes them also a little iconic is that these are the 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 foot soldiers of the powerful adversary, especially yeah. from like the Tolkien times, where the the dark wizard. So who who is he? They get together. Who are what are they going to use? They're going to use orcs. Yeah, you can get a whole ton of them together, and it's not like there's orcs like there's six in the woods. You wish. <laughs> yeah. now there's six in each tent yeah because you just entered an army encampment so yeah <laughs> all right so then moving up the list who is next on our list of iconic D monsters we're going to the mid-tier now i think so yeah that sounds about right come on tone throw one out uh, I mean, I gotta say, if we're going into mid-tier, this is a little high, but let's talk about a Mind Flare. Um, whoa, whoa, I thought you said mid-tier, that's like, that's like epic tier, but okay. No, no, if you actually look, your straight Mind Flare is actually pretty, uh, you know, they're, they're, they have some power, but they're, in terms of CR level and stuff, they're actually more in that, that second tier time. You know, unless of course you enter a nautiloid and there's like an elder brain there. <laughs> and then, yeah. Sorry, it's one of those things where you never really encounter one mind flare. Like one mind flare alone, sure. Like they're like a vampire, right? They're they're not too tough, but you never really run into one, one. mind flare. It's a CR seven. You run into yeah. mind flares and intellect devours and more yeah. mind flares and an elder brain somewhere running them. Stay in the underdark and, and some sort of human <laughs> and hu some human thralls just in case, you know. Got to have the human thralls. Definitely need to. I think, uh, yeah, Tone, I would argue it, it's one of those ones that I think is most iconic because of D&D &D as well, yeah. right? As, as opposed to other fantasy or science fiction stuff, I think Mind Flayers are so quintessential Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. So, the question, how do you run an iconic Mind Flayer? The Mind Flayer is supposed to have an alien... I mean, it's obviously inspired by Cthulhu. These are like Cthulhu's just kids. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just. Well, their whole, yeah, their whole thing is, uh, is to have the Cyclopean type of cities and the Nautiloids and this alien tech. So yeah, they are, they're Lovecraft writ large. Absolutely. So really, that's supposed to throw the curveball. So you have these, these warriors in your party that can take damage and avoid hits, and then you turn their brains into grape jelly. Yeah, that's like a frightening ability, right? Like the idea, like, like, yeah, you might be able to beast them, but if they hook into your head, you're just dead. Like, there's, it's not like, oh, I'm gonna resurrect you. No, like they ate your fucking brain, dude. Like mashed tasty, potatoes. Tasty brains. Yep. Yeah, yeah that is actually one of the things that makes them so interesting. Is they are one of the first monsters that the players run into that has kind of an instant kill function to them. Right, you yeah. Know, you could be at full hit points and the Mind Flayer gets a hold of your brain and yep, num, num, num. <laughs> Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, you're dead. Yeah, exactly. I think they might actually be one of those, uh, I mean, there's probably maybe a couple before them, but they're the they're the big boy that you first hit that, yeah, they're going to, they'll end you. And as you it, said, Thorne, you know, are you really going to run into the one rogue Mind Flayer? You know, <laughs> I mean, maybe. 
Maybe. And there's a good reason for that. Sure. You know, he but least has a, he at least has a pet intellect of our at least bare minimum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or at least some, some thralls. There have to be at least some thralls. So, I mean, how do you play up the alien aspect of dealing with a mind player, though? Because, I mean, we haven't even mentioned they also have psionic attacks. The mind blast is mind meant blast. to be a psychic yeah. attack, even though even if you're not playing with psionics. So, like, how do you play up the alienness of dealing with a mind flayer? Uh, Lair. They need to be somewhere weird when they encounter this. You're not going to walk into the, the bookstore and then there's the mind flayer. There's Zoidberg. No. You have to be in some... <laughs> Weird part of the dungeon where there's like alien walls. I mean, from the movie Aliens, where it's like organic and slimy. Play that up. Let them find some skulls with some holes drilled in it, like a bowling ball. I mean, do do a little build up. Have fun with that. And then they're like, oh, these guys are so tough. And then see how many warriors in the party bothered to invest in intelligence resilience. <laughs> Don't let nobody. <laughs> Yeah, you go full H.R. Geiger when you run into the Mind Flayer layer, right? Yeah, it has to have that Lovecraft Cyclopean. I mean, even if you go in and look at some of the write-ups on layer builds and things of that nature, it reads like something out of a Lovecraft novel when you come upon, you know, you've crossed over the Arctic and you find this ancient city. Uh, it's it's a Mind Flayer layer. Uh, yeah. So you kind of have to play that that deep speech kind of feel, that very alien concepts. They don't really understand human thought patterns or even ways of looking at the world, right? And and that should kind of be communicated, especially through some of the telepathic functions. You know, I think that's a great time to play up miscommunications and languages being important because they'll they'll be speaking in maybe pictures in your mind or, or things you don't even understand, you know? It's like, it's like meeting the aliens from contact, except they really do want to suck your brains out. (laughs) Except they don't appear as your dad on a nice (laughs) beach. Like, yeah, no, no. Oh no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean contact. What's the other one? The one one that came out more recently. Um, Oh, um, Oh yeah. I don't know. Because it comes from it comes from the book Stories of Your Life and Others from Ted Chiang, which I read, and I've read that story. I think it's called Arrival. Does that sound right? Yes. Yes. Arrival, yeah. yeah. And it's uh yeah. Amy Adams. Yes. Yeah, Where the absolutely. aliens just like they put like their spherical their 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 like ring hand on the wall and they just yeah. make letters out of it and you're supposed to try to interpret it. And yeah, by the time and she the... can interpret it, she now has the ability to actually see the past, present, and future at once. That might have been more in the book. Stuff like that. You know, those are the things that are different. You know, maybe stream up their telepathy with their mind blast, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, the first time you communicate with this thing, it almost breaks your mind, you know. Because last time I checked, unless Professor X is in the party, most people are not used to that, right? (laughs) There you go. Well, out of all the creatures we've discussed so far, I would say the Mind Flayer is the one I am almost certainly going to make evil, unless I want to really curveball this and throw the benevolent Mind Flayer. Maybe he broke away from society. He thinks slavery sucks. He's tired of the underdark politics. He, you know, he wants to be an honest <laughs> merchant, and he has good stuff, and I'm going to try to get the party to, treat, to actually interact with this Mind Flayer who does think your brain smells delicious. But he swears he's a vegetarian now. <laughs> 
He swears he's a vegetarian now. However, he will take brains as compensation for what you're buying from him. No questions asked. He'll just take a brain. Yeah, I mean, I will say they did play that up a little bit in uh, one of the story arcs. I think in the first season of Critical Role, I think he had them literally meet a rogue mind flayer in the Underdark named Clarota, who they nicknamed Clarence, and played it as this. He was helping them, but the whole time you're wondering, like, what is this dude's actual plan? You know, because he's a mind flayer, right? But at the same point, he's also helping them because he's been like kind of stuck in there and maybe a prisoner or something like that. Yeah. You know? I hope they bring yeah. that out in the next season because that sounds very interesting. I want to so, meet, yeah, the, I meet Tony. The, I think you I, can. I want to meet the friendly mind flayer, the helpful oh, mind flayer. Clarence, the mind flayer. Yeah. There, well, I did have a helpful mind flayer in one of my adventures. I, I forget the the dynamic because this is a real hot minute ago. But uh, the player was trapped in a mage's prison. And his, you couldn't see who he was in, in an adjoining cell with, but it was a mind flare, and they had to kind of work some things out to escape, and they inevitably did. But, you know, do you ever really ever really trust somebody who would hypothetically eat your brain? I mean, you know, uh, is it any different from trusting a vampire? And those are all over fiction these days. Yeah, it kind of is. It's a really next level shit, there. I'm sorry. It's like it's, I may yeah, turn you like, dead. I'm gonna. Because a vampire can take a vampire can take some sips and not take the whole thing. Is that is that the difference here? I don't remember the sixth grade and before. No, I, mean, you know, I, right. I think it's uh, it's like Silence of the Lambs, right? Like lava beans. You have a partnership <laughs> with a person that will eat your liver. You know. <laughs> <laughs> And the minute he gets out in the next movie, does that, like, right away. Like, he's not mm. hungry, and he just cooks some dude's brains up, you know? Like, doesn't even matter, so. Was it just some dude? I thought I thought that was actually, like, his old psychiatrist or something he went and got. It was, and it, he ate his, like, face off or something like that. He wanted something. Yeah. All right, so, speaking of moving on to the next monster, who else we got on the list here? Who's the next up above Mind Flayer? Well, can I throw something out here? Because we've talked only about intelligent creatures so far. And I made the point that goblins, outside of dragons, being in the name, are the most iconic. How about this? The most We're not going to talk about politicians, are we? The most iconic, non-intelligent, or at least like in, our, in a way we can understand, creature in Dungeons & Dragons, mm-hmm. the Black Pudding. It made my list, yes. The Black Pudding. The Black Pudding? Over the, the black glass cube. The blob. Like, which one is which? Like, which is more iconic, gelatinous cube or black pudding? I don't know which one is more deadly, because holy shit, maybe both (laughs) of them. Maybe there's a black pudding inside the gelatinous cube, and they've made a partnership, and they're friends, like the odd couple. I don't know. (laughs) Indeed, that is truly horrifying. Which is is worse, and which is more iconic? And I mean, like, you don't even have to say, how do you play them? I mean, you play them as they are, right? A black pudding is extremely resistant to a lot of different attack forms. Yes. yes. Well, and, and a lot of different attack forms are not only resistant, they make it duplicate. You multiply them. <laughs> I will say it was more dangerous in earlier editions. In, in, in fifth edition, I played them a little more dangerous than the written up because there's a limit on how far they can multiply down which I hadn't really played when I ran the Woodstock Wanderers into them. Although I would say the Woodstock Wanderers probably remember the black pudding really, really well. Oh man. I, my, my, um, 
armor and shield were messed up for adventures after that. Adventures. I had lost AC because of that that encounter. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, we got to talk about a rust monster, don't we? You know, rust monsters more iconic in earlier editions, I think, than current editions, because they used to be able to eat magic items. <laughs> yeah, the rust monsters now down to a CR one half. So I would say that was maybe it just has a propeller. Maybe they're like, oh my god, how did this get through testing? But they used to be truly something that the warrior horrific. Was of. Yeah. yeah, and now it's kind of like the goblin, the gremlins from the gremlins movie, with except less interesting and interactive. I mean, yeah, because the old school rust monster, and I would argue that is a very iconic, a very iconic monster. But the what made it iconic was okay, you hit it and your sword starts to crack apart, and you start losing pluses from your from your weapon when you hit it, and you start losing pluses from your armor when it hits you. And no matter what you do, your stuff is degrading. Even if you kill the rust monster, you're still going to come out of this like ne- like negative five down on your armor class and on your hit on, on your attack rolls. So the iconic rust monster to me is that. Not so much these days. You can still do it because you can you can roll it out against the lower level characters where they don't have any pluses yet. There's no magic, but the real magic of the rust, rust monster is being able to eat magic items. That's when that's when you know you hear the audible suction from the rear ends getting tight around the rust monster. <laughs> What's that? My sword's now a plus what now? What? Yeah. So as opposed to something like the uh, the gelatinous cubes and black pudding, still where not only can they affect your uh, your armor and your weaponry, they can they can completely eat you as well, which is you know always a tension builder. But That's I think black That's pudding true. is so I don't know. It's just so D and D, right? To me, I would have actually gone. I would have gone gelatinous cube over black pudding. For me, because to me that's so D and D. And the of course the fun part of a of a gelatinous cube is they don't necessarily see it. Oh look at that! There's a key on the ground. There's a now I'm being eaten by a gelatinous cube. Bloop. <laughs> which, actually happened the, which happened in the same Woodstock Wanderers game. Yep. Actually, just a few a few turns after the black pudding. Yeah, not long after. No, yeah. no. One of the characters went wandering ahead and boom, right into right into a gelatinous cube. That's a very pudding-focused episode of, of Woodstock Wanderers. <laughs> oh, Christ. All right, so these are iconic. I mean, I don't know. I, I agree with Tony, though. You kind of play them like they are, right? Yeah, they're, they're what they are, though, right? So, okay, so what is next on our list of iconic monsters and how you play them? I should I say, honorable mention dragons, but we've done a whole episode whoa, of Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, you're, you're, you're jumping here. That, that's, okay, that's here's what's fun. Here. Here's what's fun with dragon, real quick. They can be played in every single tier. You yes. know, that's what's so that's what's so great is the most iconic monster. You can play with it from from the first adventure onwards. You know? But there there was a real caution with that because 4E really gave you a toolbox of dragons for all levels. And while on the surface that sounds like a fantastic idea, it turns into a Skyrim situation where I'm killing a dragon every time I leave town, and then who gives a shit eventually? It's like, oh, <laughs> god damn it. It's another stupid dragon. All right, guys, let's kill it. It's just like an uh, infestation. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have rats. We have dragons. And, you know, they leave crap treasure. I absorb another dragon soul. Yay. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about crap treasure. They always at least left you scales and bones, and they were always worth a lot. Of, they were always worth something. In that broken economy. Ugh. I thought you'd be started. <laughs> Plus, they made the best armor. Which you can make mm. yourself. I mean, yes. 
So, okay. So, but we have done dragons in, the, in another episode. So I would actually point you more than talk about them here. You know, we're 45 minutes in. I would actually point our listeners to the dragon episode for how we actually run dragons. Yeah. Yeah. So taking dragons out of this, out of this particular podcast, what's next up on the list of iconic D and D monsters and how you run them. Giants. And if I have to point to my favorite one, giants! I would say the, fi- the fire giant is the most fun adversary for the party. Actually, Frost and Fire, I kind of enjoy. Any of the giant, any of the giant classes from Hill all the way to Storm are wildly iconic, if for nothing else than from against the giants from mm-hmm. 20. I mean, it's they're they're just iconic to the game itself, but hell of a hell of fun to play, too. I think they're great benchmarks. Really? You think you're a badass? You think that you, you could just walk into a mod and throw down no strategy great here's four frost giants there it is guys yeah Have like that. you want to you're gonna i'm gonna run up and hit them cool here's a rock to the face for 4d10 plus whatever damage right? yeah. <laughs> cool all right you're dead so, <laughs> I remember, yeah. it's funny in uh in the first game of the slavers bay when i had you guys in the pits and i decided to make the final uh, Theocles guy, a hill giant in essence, and I fired a piece of rubble across the arena. I hit Shannon's character. She went, <laughs> she just went down. I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, the rocks are 46 uh, or 40, 10 plus six. Yeah. I mean, that's, that that's just, ugly. Yeah. yeah. So. That'll light you up. That'll definitely light you up. And I you did know? really, I had hoped that when you guys had gone to Christmas land to fight Charlie Manx in that one Christmas episode in the Straw game, I had so wished that you were going to fight the three frost giants I had dressed as Santa Claus and St. Nick and Father Christmas. And they were going to have a snowball <laughs> fight with you. I was so jazzed for that. Just so, 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 you're saying, so you're saying you were really wishing we were stupid. Yes. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> Let's say more adventurous. <laughs> We've got to go fight. We're here to fight this you know, master level vampire. And you want us to get in a fight with three storm giants first? I don't know. I don't. Or frost giants. Yeah. I, I don't think so. Just a fun encounter. You know? <laughs> you got to get some of the hot chocolate to heal yourself up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Would have been fun. Don't get me wrong. But I think we needed to conserve our strength in that particular encounter. Well, I think but, Tony okay. can speak the most on this, though, since he literally ran the update two against the Giants for us, right? Yeah. Now, the gi- Giants are a lot of fun because... That that is the what I would define as a meteor creature. Like you guys really want to showcase your awesome abilities, and I don't want you to blow through them. No problem. I mean, I was talking fought, we're talking about fire and frost giants. Uh, frost giants got 138 hit points. You're, you're not going to just you're going to get to hit say, that guy for a while. You're going to get yeah. to put a few licks on that guy before he goes down. And yeah. I wouldn't want to slog it, but I mean, if they're in a situation where they push the envelope, you could get mobbed and be dealing with that crap yeah Boston, so how do you play them and make them like how do you play them so they're iconic how do you capture the feel of fighting a classic gi- giant when your players when your party's fighting them so for something like that i want to set the scene we're saying let's stick with frost giant this is as i'm talking about you know you're, they're walking around in the snow-covered hills and they find a giant footprint with some mangled body like embedded into the ice <laughs> let's lead off with that you know, or they find the last group of, you know, uh, merc- some other 
person who's on the road before you that was cleaved entirely in half by a literal giant bladed weapon and make them scratch their heads and debate what could have possibly done that. Uh, I think it's a giant. Probably a giant. My money's on giant. And that's great, because then you have a debate. And then, you know, people are like, wow, we should stay clear of this. There's several giants. They're seeing the giant footprints out. And then there's that one jackass in the party. He's like, no, no, we, we got to throw down. Think of the XP, you know. <laughs> We've all think had of the experience. Yeah, yeah that's think of the experience. I, I think we've all heard it at our tables. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. Uh, yeah, but I it. will say, so one of the things, there was an old Dragon Magazine article that really played out making giants feel more giant. And they added mm. stuff like, they added like a kick. They basically added what were effectively like legendary actions to the giants. So like a giant could boot you and you go flying like a hundred feet backwards, plus take damage from the boot. A giant could pick you up and throw you. A giant could put you in his mouth and chew on you. And some of these things I think really do help drive home the idea that it is a giant you're fighting. But I think the best way to do them would be to almost to make them like legendary actions because they're not necessarily built into the core giant write up. The core giant write up is basically. You know, you've got your you've got your your boulders, you've got some fists, and you've got some weapons, and that's about it. Like they don't really get into here's here. I'm actually a giant. Here, boom! I kicked you. You've gone 200 yards. Feel go good. We uh yeah no we've talked about that many times and and if you're really trying to create that this thing is a giant this thing is 15 feet tall um there are definitely some limits to the way they write it up especially when like we talked about with reach. And yeah. things of that nature. I understand they give additional damage dice to it to to reflect that this thing is a giant and it's hitting really hard. But yeah, to be able to swing through and hit, you know, the three people that are in front of it with one big swipe, um, that Sometimes. those are some things that could definitely assist. Maybe for like a giant boss or something yeah. like that, right? Because like they do a good job of making the giants tough. They don't do a great job of making them flavorful. Yeah, I would say in fifth edition D and D, and actually, really, most editions of D and D. I don't know. What do you think, Tony? Do you agree with that? Or Storm King had different options for the giants. So, for example, addition to the normal range of abilities a storm giant would have, for example, uh, they could do a thunderous stomp, and that kind of mixed it up a little bit. Uh, but all the giants had something like I think uh, one of the giants could toss you. Other giants had special weighted nets. It was interesting. See, I like the tossing. Yeah, right? A little bit more flavor. Or the chewing. I mean, that goes back to the whole, like, Jack and the the Beanstalk giant, you know, fee-fi-fo-fum. But this thing that's going to lift you up and try to just just eat you. I mean, because you're literally the size of, like, a Snickers bar to some giants, (laughs) right? Like, it's not going to – it's not that – it's like the Rancor, Right? In Jedi, right? Like it's just gonna lift you and just bite your head off, kind of thing. Yeah, just just grind your bones into into into, into meal for its power. Yeah, love it. I recommend uh, focusing on the equipment the giant has, weapons and equipment. It varies, it changes greatly between the giants. Um, unfortunately, because giants, I say this unfortunately, storm giants are typically good giants. You as they're the coolest of the entire all of them you don't really ever tangle with them. Mm. The amount of times well, I've fought a storm giant Unless you made career. some really bad decisions. Like but let's really face it, players are pretty good at making. Players yeah. are good at making some bad decisions. 
But again, we've removed alignment. So, you know, you can have some sort of rogue storm giants that have just decided to bring the Tempest down upon man for his iniquities, right? So, Not that unbelievable, except they're very tough in, in their category. Not only oh, the stars yeah. are, are creating. Yeah, aren't they like 35 feet tall? I mean, they're not 15 feet tall. They're big. No, they're like 20, 25, I think. It, yeah. They're in that range. Yeah, they're big. Yeah. They're like a building. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So we've been at this for about uh, closing in an hour. Do you want to do one more? One more iconic creature, then we'll get to some final, final thoughts. All right. What do you got? All right. Mm, that's tough. I had a couple. I, I, I have an idea. I have one idea, but what's yours? All right, so Lich is the obvious one, but I want to say something a little no. bit more flavorful and deeper cut. Death Knight. No. I was going to go Devils and Demons. No. Gen- I mean, that's what started the whole rage in the 80s about you know, kids playing with demons. <laughs> Hard to be more iconic than that. The Beholder. Beholder. Oh, how do we how do we forget Beholder? The Beholder, I think, is a complete. I I don't know for sure. I think the Beholder is a completely D and D. I got Yaxian. Yes, yes. I don't think that they're like a. Are they based on anything? I, I mean, I believe they're. I believe like most of his early things, they're based on like a, maybe a toy he picked up from like a Japanese <laughs> toy set toy toy show. But I mean, Beholders are like they're they're one of the most. I mean, they're on the first booklet yeah. too. But Lich is absolutely up there, and right. the demons, people like Orcus or uh, things like Let's that. Let's make some choices here. Let's talk about Beholders, and if we do it, if, if people like this, if you want to hear us go on more, we'll come back and do demons and liches later in another episode. But let's go. Ooh. Let's round it out with that most iconic of Dungeons and Dragons creatures, a D and D only monster, the round mound of eye beam beatdown, the Beholder. <laughs> you're like don king over here i love it <laughs> yeah no you really you really hyped that that that's uh fantastic you really can't go much more iconic than being on several front covers of D products over every single edition going back to original D in the white box yeah the yeah. beholder Right. And I remember that, and I remember that original picture. It is one of the worst pictures in the history of D and D. It's a practically stick figure to beholder. Yeah, it looks like I drew it. Yes. It's... <laughs> well, but even I mean... that, even that made the cover. So okay, so beholders. How do you play a beholder and make it iconic? So what I, I would kind of do a little bit of a subtle plug with this. Have them again in a strange environment. You know, this beholder will come from a hive. Unless he got in an Uber and he was dropped off in, in the wrong place. And you just happen to turn a corner and this beholder's there. Uh, the real, you have to showcase its abilities because that's what makes a beholder neat and cool and interesting. So they see the beholder, they scream, they're like, ah, initiative. You just do the full death blossom of this thing's beams <laughs> all over them and start the rolling death the dice. blossom. You know, people love to roll dice, right? Well, it's time to roll the who gets the anti-magic cone, the disintegrate ray, the paralyzation <laughs> ray, right down the list. I, uh, yeah, Tony, I think you're absolutely right. It's all about the lair because this thing is going to because it floats, it flies, it can, it's going to live in a very specific type of of lair that is similar to what we were talking about with mind flayers. It's going to be terribly alien and frightening. Um, and then once they find this thing, I think it's it's one of the few monsters out there that's going to shut down 
all your spellcasters. And you want to talk about scaring the pants off of some people? Make their spells stop, no yeah. matter what they do. Just because this thing looked at them. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then you have your death blossom of eye rays that just, like, this is where I think in 5e, I don't think they really toned the beholder down very much. I think it's still uh, still right up there beast-like as it, as it always was. You can only fire so many eye rays a turn, and I believe they're totally random. Uh, yes, it looks like it's totally, I'm looking at the right up now. Uh, looks like I believe you're within three, uh, and you can reroll duplicates. Um, and then you get one attack uh, with your legendary at, it, action. It is, right? is indeed, yeah, it is indeed at random. The previous Beholder really was like, let's go down the telekinesis, fear, uh, flesh to stone. There's a death ray on here. Like, yeah. that, that's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Julie, I really hope you don't botch this death, this deck save, because otherwise you're eating 10d10 necrotic. So, seems so, fair, right? So iconic beholder bullshit. Hit him with all the eye rays. Have him come into some place where they're relatively limited and can't move around. I mean, so do you do, you do the beholder in a big layer, or do you do it in a small layer where people got to deal with the eye rays? Like Tony said, a hive. This thing has tunneled out this cyclopean uh, rock face or whatever it might be. Or you go into a spell jamming ship and that's its pilot because these guys did original the original divisions did spell jam. There's your alien. Or Tony has never done that before in a campaign that I've been in it. Or you're in Waterdeep, let's say, and you walk in the back of Satriel's pork store. And Xanathar is back there having an espresso because he's like the crime boss or whatever. In like, <laughs> you know, and he's in a little, little uh, you know, a little back room or something. But that brings know. up a question, too. Where does the espresso go? Yeah. There's there's I, just a mouth. There's no stomach on these things. Yeah. He just absorbs it. He's an aberration. It goes to the place uh, between the stars. That's where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Now I gotta agree. I mean, beholders really are probably the most iconic of those last that we uh, that, that we brought up. And the only thing I would really add to playing a beholder is sometimes players get really, really good at knowing how to take them out. You know, like I feel you know, they can deploy like SEAL Team Six. The 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 rogue the rogue immediately slides under the beholder for the sneak attack up into its gut. The wizards immediately split so the, he can't get both of them in the anti-magic ray. Everyone moves around. You know, like they, they, maybe the fighters come through the anti-magic ray because they don't want to be hit by the eye stalks, so they use that for protection. You do want to make it a little bit hard for the players, if they know how to fight a beholder, to just execute that strategy. Because you can have beholders blow up really fast if the party really thought through, okay, what am I going to do when I meet this beholder? So, <laughs> metagaming. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it's metagaming. Maybe they're on a hunt. Maybe they know what they're looking for. Which brings me to my point. I really think you want to introduce the beholder where they don't know exactly what they're running into when they run into it. And I think you want to have it have some some aspect of surprise to it. Not necessarily a surprise round, but there should be an oh shit moment when the party runs into the beholder. Right. Mm. I mean, it shouldn't be like, oh, hi, ho, hi, ho. Off the hunt, the beholder we go. It's, oh, no, we've stepped in it now and we're locked in the room with this with, with this with the spinning ball of death. Well, and like we've talked about in other episodes with other creatures, a beholder is a very is a wildly intelligent creature. I mean, it's going to plan this type of stuff out. It's going to have tried to figure it out similar to, like, say, a vampire or whatever. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's the D&D movie, and they're like dogs. But they'll get me started on that. <laughs> yeah, we can throw out all the movies so far. They got one more chance. They got one more chance to make a good movie coming out. But so far, all the D&D movies right in the scrap bin. They've been terrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Stick with the animated D and D stuff. That's where yeah, they really stay in your lane, guys. Oh my god. <laughs> Whether it's teenagers that arrive and talk to Dungeon Master, or it's just a bunch of uh, dick jokes and and uh, and well, salt, like pieces, whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Those are <laughs> stick with those. That's your that's D and D. All right. So guys, we've been going on about this for a little while. Let's take it to final so, thoughts about playing iconic monsters as the DM. Regardless of what creature you are playing. Make sure that you you set it up properly and it's given an appropriate amount of flavor. Don't box yourself in where you have to believe that any type of these creatures has to be played a certain sort of way, like a vampire. You absolutely do not. A vampire has range. A goblin has range. Uh, giants have been allies, really. And that could be an NPC that really provides, like I had a helpful troll in my one game. It threw people for a loop, but it then becomes memorable. And you just keep several helpful trolls, Tony. Several helpful trolls. I was building up to something. So when you met the king troll, that you could not trust him anyway. Wait, that didn't work <laughs> out. All right, I'm getting off topic. But for more on that story, check out our Storm King's Thunder uh, debrief episode. There it is. There it is. But yeah, then just uh, have an appreciation for these creatures, kind of like they're celebrities in their own weight classes. Like, you know, you roll out these iconic monsters in the, in the right times where they can be challenging or interesting uh, for the players and just make sure that they use so that they can really give the players the run for the money that they should. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback off what you were just saying, Tony, because I think that was a good point, because we've been talking the whole time about kind of what's the tagline for these iconic creatures. Uh, you know, why are they iconic, even if they're not powerful? You know, why do they hold this place? So and I think the idea that Thorne was kind of throwing out, like what makes them as a whole, like how how do you play them that gives them this iconic this? And that's good. And I think there's a level of tradition there and a level of familiarity that can add some weight to your story. But I will say in the same way that they have decided with the whole alignment thing to just scrap the whole idea of alignment for wide swaths of these creatures and if they have an npc or a villain they have an alignment because they're an individual i think in that way with what you were saying tony where things have range that's where you can play that up you can have this general idea of how these these creatures may be and you can always have those little bright spots but having an idea of how do they react because that can also help you while you're role playing on the fly how are they going to react to whatever you're doing as the players? Yeah, yeah. All right. And for me, um, you know, I think Tony touched on it, and it's probably, for me, the most important aspect here. When you're trying to make something iconic, nothing makes it as iconic as the way you describe it. So when we're talking about these iconic creatures of D&D, getting into it with the description, getting into who they are and what they are, and, and just letting the players know what they're encountering in your description is going to go a long way to making them feel iconic. Like we talked about, you have the giant. Well, how do you introduce the giant? Full grown human in its footprint. 
you know, something that was ripped in half. Uh, how do you describe how do you describe the the goblins? Well, people have had some really terrifying encounters with really brutish, small enemies. Um, those enemies, you know, when, when you encounter them, they're sniveling but angry at the same time. Like, like they want to they want to beat you up if they can. And they want to run away if they can't. They're being bossed around by their own fellows and the bossing around like the goblin boss or the or maybe the bugbear that's there bossing other goblins around. These sorts of things add to what makes that an iconic encounter. And players will remember that. They will remember those little bits of descriptions that really make things iconic. So my final thoughts, you know, all the stuff we talked about here, uh, I think covers really kind of how you play these things and make them feel more iconic. But nothing is as important as the description the DM gives them. That's it for me. Guys, thanks a lot for joining me on another episode here. This was iconic, this episode. <laughs> we are truly iconic. Yeah. <laughs> The three wise DMs. The three iconic <laughs> DMs would have a whole separate spin-off I, I, series. I We're rebranding. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for listening from home. We appreciate you joining us on another, on another episode of Three Wise DMs. If you like what you heard, please hit the five-star rating button in your podcast platform. Share it with your friends. It all helps us grow. If you want to hear us talk about your question, we love taking reader questions. You can put them in the What's Your Problem field on threewisedms.com. Or you can send us an email at threewisedms at gmail.com. Or you can talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're active on all those places. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs. <laughs>